If you've got a Bible with you, uh, you can turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Um, we're going to be looking today at a story in the midst of Leviticus that helps us to understand our need for forgiveness of sins and about how Jesus paid that price. Now, here's the thing. I know when I say the words, open your Bibles to Leviticus, that there is an immediate groundswell of joy within your hearts. Amen, right? Now, for some of you, there are, and you have a twisted sense of being, all right? Um, I remember um, when, I was, when I was going into, eighth, going into ninth grade um, that summer, between my eighth and ninth grade years, um, with my youth group, I'd gone to a camp called Centrifuge. Our kids still went to Centrifuge the last few years. Um, I went to Centrifuge at Ridgecrest, North Carolina. That week I was called to ministry. And uh, I, I remember specifically, could give you all the details of that calling, still hold on that today, that God had placed on my life that, that, that I was to do this for my, my livelihood and that I was to commit my life to that. And so I came home, and that summer, um, we went in June after I came home, I, I didn't have anything else to do all summer. Like, it wasn't like summers now when, you know, we got stuff every week. Like, I was done in mid-June, and school didn't start till mid-August, and I stayed with my grandmother during those years. I wasn't yet old enough to drive, and so I would spend weeks at my grandmother's, uh, who lived in the same town as I did, and just stay there for the day. And it wasn't the most exciting place, and so I got back and thought, you know what, I'm committed to going to ministry I'm going to dedicate my life to this. I'm going to get serious about it. I'm going to read the entire Bible before I go back to school. Because, you know, I was eighth grade and didn't know any better. All right. And so I started and read Genesis and read Exodus and got to Leviticus. And I ended that summer in about the third chapter of Leviticus. It was like a kid that's like running like on the beach, on the hard sand, and then it hits the, the like soft sand and just like comes to a stop, right? And so I understand that when we talk about Leviticus, sometimes there are lots of these kind of misunderstandings about it or questions about it. And let's just be real honest with us, all right, with each other, all right? We're here. We're, this thing going to get out. It's not like it's going to be on the Internet or anything, all right? Um, Leviticus is a weird book. Amen? Some of you are like, I don't know. Never read it, but it is, all right? It's a weird book. I mean, you start with the title, right? It's not like, like we can get around names of books like John or Matthew or Genesis or Exodus. But Leviticus just sounds weird. Like it sounds like a disease or the latest hipster genes out there. Like it sounds different, right? And then you look at some of the things. And these are just parts of Leviticus. And we're going we're gonna to get to a, a point in Leviticus, but I, I want to cover some of this on the beginning to kind of talk through what we're going to talk about. I mean, here are some of the regulations in Leviticus, some of the things that they say in Leviticus. For instance, in Leviticus 11, you don't have to look these up now. I mean, you can if you want to, I guess. But eating locust is good and eating shrimp is bad. Now, have any of you, I mean, think about that, right? How many of you have ever eaten locust? How many of you have ever eaten shrimp? Sinners. Right there, right? That's what it says. It's unlawful, right? God apparently says in Leviticus 19 that if you cut your sideburns, you've sinned. It's a good thing not to cut your sideburns. Duck Dynasty was a permanent fashion fixture back then. No tattoos. That's in Leviticus 19. Over in Leviticus 20, it says that if you backtalk your parents... You get stoned. I've been waiting for Jeff and Ellie to teach that 
to our kids on Sunday mornings, right? You, you can absolutely not wear clothes of mixed fiber. So if you're wearing polyester this weekend, you may not only be out of fashion, you're in the midst of sin, according to Leviticus. If you're wearing spandex this weekend, you're in sin for multiple reasons, all right? Lots of things. There's a law in Leviticus that says if two guys get in a fight and one guy reaches out and grabs the other guy in a sensitive area, that that guy must have his hand cut off. And I'm just like, why is that necessary to even talk about, right? Like there are lots of stuff and you're just like, what are all these rules for? And here's what happens with Leviticus, all right? So Leviticus, even though it's not a book that we study or read a lot because it's weird sounding, it's got all these rules... It's one of those books that gets thrown at Christians all the time and people say, well, why do you believe part of the Bible and not other parts? Why, why, why is it okay for you to do certain things that it says not to in Leviticus, but then you hold the standard on that? Of all the rules, why do you pick and choose what you want to do? And people will say, when Leviticus talks about certain sexual behaviors, you quote that. But then it says, don't eat shellfish or a hamburger with cheese on it. And you're like, nah, we don't worry about that. Now people will say, you can't pick and choose. If you believe the whole thing, you can't pick and choose what you want to say. And you're like, oh, well, I don't really know how to come back to that. Because we like parts of Leviticus and we don't. But that's not the real reason. So here's what I want to do, real briefly. I want to give you a reason, and then we're going to talk about one specific kind of law in the midst of this. The reason that we hold fast to things, or those of us that are they're followers of Jesus that believe in the Bible and the inerrancy that it's perfect and that God's Word is what it says it is, that we hold to facts like in sexual ethics and moral clauses in, the, in Leviticus about you know homosexuality and marriage and all those kind of things. Why we hold to that, and then we go out and eat shrimp on Friday night. That's because in Leviticus, there are three kinds of laws. If you've got somewhere to write down, write this stuff down, all right? This may not be right on your leg important stuff, but this is, you know, note-taking important stuff, all right? So write this down somewhere. Patrick, if you want to, go ahead, whatever, all right? But this is, this is three kinds of laws in Leviticus. And if somebody comes to you and says to you, <laughs> honestly, they're not going to want this response, but you can give them a response. Why do you believe certain parts and not others? Three kinds of laws in the book of Leviticus. First of all, there is civil laws. There are ceremonial laws and there are moral laws in Leviticus. Civil laws are the laws that are there to govern a nation. We have to remember that the book of Leviticus was written to a group of people that were forming a nation for the first time and had never done so. And so these are laws about this is how you rule a nation. This is who's in charge. This is what happens if someone offends you. If someone commits a crime, this is how you deal with it. Then there are ceremonial laws. It's not just any nation. This is a nation that has God as its king. And so part of living in a nation with God as its king is you have to figure out, okay, how do we live in a ceremonial way so that we stay in good standing with God? How do we live in a way that we are right with God? And so there are regulations about cleanliness and about the sacrificial system and about what you should eat and how you should eat. And the part of understanding all of that is Leviticus is a lot about the holiness of of God and what he requires of his people who are also going to be holy. And then there are the moral laws. Those are the laws that God sees and declares that things are moral, they're good, or they're immoral, they're bad. Things like murder and theft and even ideals about sexuality are included in these moral laws. And so in the book of Leviticus, you've got all three of those. You've got civil laws, you've got ceremonial laws, you've got moral laws. 
And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament, and Jesus says two things about the book of Leviticus that are kind of crazy. Now, I, I want to tell you this from the very beginning, all right? Jesus loved Leviticus. We know that because he quotes Leviticus almost as much or more than any other book in the Bible. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which you might know what Deuteronomy is. It's the second telling of Leviticus, of the law. He quotes those. In fact, Jesus probably had Leviticus memorized. His church youth group memorized Leviticus. And Jeff hadn't told them, but that's their task this summer. No, I'm just joking. They're, they're not, all right? But he had it memorized. And so he would quote it all the time. And he said two things about the law. He said, first of all, that the law is perfect. In fact, he uses this phrase, that not a jot or a tittle will be removed from it. It just means that every T is crossed, every I is dotted, it is perfect. And then he tells us that those of us who follow him have been released from the law because he has overcome it, fulfilled it, perfected it. So what does he mean that it's perfect and that it's fulfilled? Well, he means that everything in Leviticus points towards him. And we'll talk about that more in a little while. But everything in Leviticus points toward him. So the building of a nation and the civil laws builds towards the nation from which Jesus would come. And God had to have it set up so that Jesus could come. The ceremonial laws were about being right with God. It would point towards Jesus paying the sacrifice for our sins. And the moral laws reflect what God sees as good and right. Now, we have been released from the civil laws because we're no longer a nation of Israel. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We have been released from the ceremonial laws because Jesus paid the price once and for all. We don't have to worry about that again. But the moral law still contains what God sees as good and right. So the sexual ethics in Leviticus are still good, but the prohibitions on eating shellfish and not wearing polyester, those are past or perfected. And so it's not just randomly that we pick it, it's that it's what Jesus told us to interpret it. And here's what we're going to do today in Leviticus 16. We're going to look at the one chapter. I could have preached the entire book of Leviticus, but I chose one chapter and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to pick one chapter right in the middle. And this chapter is the one that everything leads up to in the book of Leviticus. I, I can't even say it right. Right. And so as you're moving through Leviticus, everything goes towards chapter 16. And when you get there, it's like the top of the mountain and everything flows out of it. And in chapter 16, God gives instructions about a very important day. The most important day of the Jewish year, a day called Yom Kippur, which means the day of covering. It became so important to the Jewish people that they stopped even calling Yom Kippur in some places. They just called it Yom, the day, the day, the important day. And here's what's going to happen, okay? I'm going to tell you this from the front end. You're going to be tempted when you hear this story as we start to tell it to think, oh man, that's a cool historical story. Man, that's really some cool details about that, and I didn't, knew, I didn't know that. Man, that's cool about the goats and the bulls and all that kind of stuff. And, and then they but ah, it's just a cool history story. I don't know how it impacts us. Yesterday, our family did something we haven't done. Um, we've been in Nashville for almost nine years, and yesterday was the first day we'd ever done this particular part of Nashville kind of lore. We went to the Parthenon, okay? 
So first time we'd ever been to the Parthenon, um, we we drove past it many times, but we went to the Parthenon. And man, it's a cool place. You see all this kind of history stuff there. Um, Luke and Susan did not realize there was a 41 foot statue in the middle of it. And so it was fun to see their faces when they kind of turned the corners. Like, whoa, I mean, like, that's a huge statue. Like, I knew there was a statue, but it's huge, right? There are all these history things about ancient Greece and, you know, being somebody that in seminary and in college studied Greek language. It's kind of interesting to me. And uh, the Greek mythology stuff and, you know, got to spend some good quality time explaining to Maddie that Greek mythology is what they thought about God, but it's not really God. And the stuff we believe is real and it's true and did all that kind of discussion and stuff. But the Parthenon is just history. Nothing that I did there yesterday is going to impact my life. Like seeing the statue of Athena, that even though it's impressive, is not going to change how I live. But the thing that we study in Scripture ought to have a bearing on how we live, no matter how historical, interesting it might be. And here's what I want you to understand about Leviticus 16. It answers for the people of Israel... And as a result, because of what Jesus did for us, for us, one of the most important questions you can ever have answered. And that is, how do I get rid of those things in my life that I feel guilty or shameful or know I've done wrong with? The whole book deals with the problem. Every single one of us face it at some point. In fact, we feel guilty about certain things. We feel guilty about things that are hidden. We feel guilty about things that we've done. We feel guilty about things that are in the open. Sometimes we feel guilty about things that we don't think anybody else knows. And when somebody comes up to us and says, hey, we need to talk, we're like, oh, no, they know. And then we are guilty about that. Maybe it's a sin that you committed with somebody else a long time ago. Maybe it's that you feel like you've been a bad parent or you've been a bad child or You didn't do well, you know, school's over and there were some things you did in school that you really aren't proud of. Or maybe even you did something to somebody or had a relationship that was strained and that person's gone and you really can't fix it anymore. And it leads to shame and you start to think, well, what kind of person am I? And and, and if I could do something like that, what does that say about me? And even people that don't believe in God have this sense, what psychologists call covert guilt. The sense that they've done something wrong, even if they can't put their finger on what it is. It leads to this question, if that's who I am and if that's what kind of person I am, if I've got this thing in my life, does that mean I am that person? If I am that person, does that mean I'm going to be judged for that? Does that mean that there's a reckoning to Monday? Well, how am I going to get clean from all of that? How am I going to get rid of all of that? What can I do about it? The book of Leviticus and chapter 16 in particular, this day, the day of covering, answers that question. Leviticus chapter 16. Now, we're going to start actually in chapter 10, verse 1. You don't have to turn back there. It'll be on the screen because this is the background of what happens in chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. Now, Aaron, just so you remember, is Moses' brother. Aaron was Moses' right-hand man. Aaron was the one that spoke. Remember Moses before God said, I can't even speak. And he says, I'll give you Aaron. And Aaron spoke. So Aaron was there for all the miracles. Aaron is also the one that... um, Got the people in trouble when he was up on Mount Sinai, Moses was, and led them astray. But God, in his grace and mercy, said, Aaron, out of your line will be the priest. Out of your line will be the people that will lead my people in worship. And so two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. Now, this is all part of natural practice of what they did in that time to worship, all right? And they offered 
unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Now, it's not really important to talk about why this was contrary to his command or what the command was or any of that. You just need to understand that Nadab and Abihu did something they weren't supposed to do in the offering of worship to God. Okay? So fire came in chapter 10 out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So they bring in this offering to the Lord. It's not what God has authorized, and they immediately die. Fire comes out. And Moses says to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. So chapter 10, this story happens where Aaron's sons, two of his sons, they come up before him and they want to offer praise to God. They want to offer sacrifice to God. But it's unauthorized. It's not what God has sanctioned. It's not what God has said. It's not what he has approved. And they offer it to the Lord. And instead of the Lord saying, you know what, you guys just got it wrong. Sorry about that. Um, Try a little bit next time. Fire comes out and consumes the two guys and Aaron's sons are gone. Now look at chapter 16. If you've got your Bibles open there, that's where we're going to be. Chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. You see how this is all connected? Who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother, Aaron, that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. Now, here's what I want to, I want to stop here for a minute, okay? Um, I, we're going to cover this a little bit later, but if I don't stop now, I might forget. Anybody out there, right? If you don't say it now, you forget. Here's what I want us to realize, okay? If there were two people in the world at that time who could have felt comfortable coming into the presence of God, it was Moses and Aaron. Now, Aaron had had issues. Moses was the leader. Aaron had had issues. But Aaron was the guy the priests were going to come from. Aaron is considered the high priest. All these things are happening. And if there was a guy who, you know what? You two guys, you're good. You go see God anytime you want to. But God says to Moses, tell him not to come anytime he wants to come. This is not a, a, a willy-nilly kind of anytime you want to jump in, come in, be here. It's not that. This is a serious business. And here's what I want to say. This is just a little side note, free stuff here. What had started to happen even at this stage is that the people of God had thought their privilege with God meant that they didn't have to think about the holiness of God. God had chosen them. He had selected them. He had pulled them out of Egypt. But that did not make God less holy. And there are one of the one of the dangers, I think, for our generations. For our day is we do want to make, and this is Scripture. Scripture tells us that God is closer than a brother, that God is our friend, that God loves us, that He cares for us. We're going to talk about that. But Scripture also makes it absolutely clear that God is holy and different and that we must approach Him in that way. And there is a danger that you and I can take two, we can come into His presence without regard for His holiness. You can come into this place 
ready to worship, excited about worship, and yet you haven't dealt with all of the things that have happened in the week previous that would prevent you from being able to truly seek the face of God. And it's different for us. It's not like we have only one place that we go. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Scripture says that the Holy Spirit of God, because you've accepted Jesus Christ and the penalty that Christ paid for our sins on the cross and the resurrection and the Holy Spirit that has come, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've accepted His forgiveness, if you've been saved by Him, then the Holy Spirit of God now resides within you. And so God's presence is not out there somewhere. It's in here. And so it's not like we are entering into the presence of God only in a specific place at a specific time of the week. We are in the presence of God at all times, at all places. But there also is this reality that when we come together as a people of God, that we're expecting God to move in a way that is different, that is a little bit more, that is just ramped up a little bit because God's people are all together. And I can't help but wonder if God is prevented from working in our lives sometimes because we haven't dealt with the stuff that we have need to deal with and we forget the holiness of God and we come here and instead of breaking us down and killing us, what God just does is he just doesn't move. It'd be easy to skip over this part when Moses says to Aaron, tell him, he says, hey, bro, here's the deal. God says, you just can't waltz in there whatever you want to. There's a specific thing he wants you to do. In fact, the next verse says this. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. And the entire rest of the book of the rest of the chapter of Leviticus 16 details how Aaron is supposed to go about this day of atonement in the most holy place. It takes a little moment for us to realize what he's talking about. He's not talking about the temple because this is the time of the tabernacle. And he's not even talking about the entire temple. He's talking about a very specific part of the holy place that occurs inside the tabernacle. Now I've got a diagram for you I want to show you real quick. Because what he's talking about is this area was pretty busy every day. People were in and out of this area a lot. And even priests were in and out of this area a lot. But what he's saying is there's going to be one day a year when forgiveness for sins is going to be granted for the nation. When you're going to go into this place in the very back and this place and you have to have specific ways you go. Now, here's what it looks like, kind of a a model of it. This isn't the real thing because we don't, you know have the real thing anywhere. This is a model of it. And so there was activity here on a daily basis. But behind that curtain, there was only one day a year that anything happened. Now, a little bit about that curtain. That curtain was four inches thick. It was made of 72 blue and red purple cords, each with 24 strands in it. The veil was called the parroquet, which means shut off. And it literally meant that God had shut off. God's presence was said to dwell in that back part. And God had shut off his presence from the rest of the people. Now, there were several things back there inside this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. There are all things kind of in there. But for today's purpose, I want to focus on kind of the Ark itself and the top of the Ark. And we have a picture, an actual picture for somebody holding the Ark here. That's uh, Indiana Jones there. Right. So we don't have the real thing, but this is a pretty good representation of it. And so the ark had all this stuff in it. But on top of it, there was this place right in the middle. It was called a mercy seat. And it wasn't a chair that you sit on, but it was where God's presence resided. And yet these angels on the outside that were facing inward and these weren't your 
babies sitting on a cloud with wings kind of angels. These were warrior type of beings, similar to the ones that had the flaming sword guarding the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out. And inside the Holy of Holies, where Aaron would go once a year, where the high priest would go once a year, this ark sat, and inside the Holy of Holies sat the Ark of the Covenant, and on the Ark of the Covenant was one specific spot right in the middle of this called the Mercy Seat, where they would sprinkle blood on, and that blood, which we're going to talk about the process that came to that, that blood given on that place in the right planner in the right place at the right time was when god would forgive the nations of their sin and the main part of the temple was busy every day or the tabernacle was busy all the time but not that spot it could only be entered by one person on one day the day called yom kippur and the rest of Leviticus chapter 16, I'm not going to read all of it. You can go read it later this afternoon. It is fascinating reading, but you don't need, I'm going to kind of summarize what happens. So on that day, what would happen is they're getting ready for this to go, for this to happen. The high priest was the only one that could go in there. And so for the week before him, he would prepare himself. For one week beforehand, he would put himself outside of, the, of anybody else. He would go into solitary confinement. He'd be away from his family. He'd be away from his home. He'd be away from anyone. They would pass clean food, only clean food, into him. He would wash and bathe regularly during that time, and he was completely secluded from anybody else. When the Day of Atonement came, everyone in the place would gather around. Everyone in the camp. Thousands of people gathered around watching him. And what would happen is he would go in to the temple and he would bathe with a, just a sheet up between him and the people. He would bathe completely head to toe, every nook and cranny, and get everything clean. He would put on, and it, the Bible goes into details, he would put on linen underwear, okay? He would put on a linen ephah, he put on a linen gown, he put on a linen belt, none of which had ever been born by, worn by anybody. And he would walk in and he would do that and then present a sacrifice for himself, for his sins. And he would walk out. He would take everything off he had just put on behind that little screen. He would bathe completely, head to toe, completely again, put on a brand new pair of linen stuff, go back in and offer a sacrifice for the priest. He would walk back out. Get behind that little screen, take off his clothes, bathe completely again, head to toe, put on a brand new outfit that had never been worn by anybody, walk back in, give then a sacrifice for the people, sprinkle the blood on top of the Holy of Holies, and that would be the people's sins were forgiven. And that was part of what was going on. You have to get the picture that there are literally thousands of people watching all of this happen. They are literally cheering him on. I mean, if something bad happened to him in the midst of that, it was bad for all of them. And so when he would come out like he was done, everybody would go, is he good? He's good. He's good. Whoa! He's got two down. We're going for three. Going for three. Let's go. Now, maybe not exactly like that, but you get the picture, right? I mean, the hopes of the nation were on this one guy. And there was also this weird part of it, too. Because it said, not, not that that's normal, right? Not that what I just described was normal, but a little more weird. That also, that he would have to get a bull and he would have to get a ram. But he also had to get two goats. And one of the sacrifices was a goat. But he would bring these two goats and he would cast lots, which was basically like, um, we talked about that I think a few weeks ago, 
Maybe it was on Wednesday night we talked about it. But it's basically like, you know, the magic eight ball, you know what I'm talking about? Like you, uh, do I choose this goat? And you would shake it up and it would say yes, no, or maybe. You flip these things. If it landed on two yeses, that was yes. Flipped on two noes, that was no. If it flipped on yes and no, it meant try again. They would cast lots. And one of the goats would be chosen for sacrifice. And the other would be spared. Look at what it says in verse 10. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat, which, by the way, that's a word nobody has a clue how to translate. And the phrase scapegoat that we use in our modern day comes from their attempt to translate that word. In some Christian traditions, the word that is behind that is a word that means a demon that would later come. In some places, it just means removal. In some places, it means without. It's been taken in modern times. It's an Villain in X-Men comics, the word there. But they translate it here as scapegoat, and it just means that they're gonna, this one is going to be alive and is going to take away the sins. He shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as, and there's that word again, a scapegoat. And then it goes on later in uh, verse 21 to say this. He, that is the high priest, It's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. Now, this has got to be a weird moment because he's got his hands on it. There's other traditions about a red cord going right down the center of it. He put his hands on it. And as he's confessing sins, my understanding is he had to confess every known sin that he knew, which he meant if he knew that you did something, he might call you out right there. And I pray for brother so-and-so, and you know what he did Friday night. But he wouldn't say, you know what he did. He'd say, here's what he did. We're laying that on the goat. So this has gone for a long time. People may have volunteered theirs. There's some that say that they may have said, don't forget mine. And he put them on the goat. And then he sends the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. There was a whole thing about that person. That person takes him to the edge of the city, and then he takes him out. He has to cleanse himself when he comes back in. There's some tradition that once he got to the edge of the city, he would then give it to a Gentile, and the Gentile would take it. Um, There's also this tradition that once the goat got outside the city, they took precautions to make sure the goat never came back in the city. Because how freaky would that be if all your sins have been placed on a goat, and he's made to go outside the city, and then you're sitting around the campfire, and you're like... Isn't that our sin goat that's walked back into camp? Like, that's probably not, what, is it, what does that mean? Is God not, he didn't receive it? So literally there are traditions that the person that took the scapegoat out would take it to a cliff and push it off to kill it. It's kind of a downer way to end, isn't it, right? Scapegoat's gone, right? But here's the point of all this, okay? Because again, this all, that's kind of weird, kind of cool, I mean, all that stuff. But what does it mean? There are four things I want us to learn from this. We're going to do this very quickly from this passage in, in Leviticus 16. And the first thing is this. Our sin is much worse than we imagined. When you read Leviticus, you cannot help but see over and over and over again that our sin is greater than we imagine. There is this gulf between us and God. Even when you think about the name of that curtain that we have been shut off from God Almighty. I mean, it makes us ask the question, if today was your final day on this earth, are you absolutely sure that you've done enough, that you've been enough, that you're good enough to let God allow you into heaven? And the question is that I ask, the answer to that is unequivocally no. 
Because God uses a standard of perfection. And when you read the book of Leviticus, you see that our sin has caused an irreparable chasm between us and our God. The standard for which God expects is absolute perfection. I mean, you think about Nabab and Abihu, right? I mean, they were people that were doing what they thought was right. They were doing what was right in kind of the house of the Lord. But something happened and they got in there and God didn't say, well, you're sort of okay. I'll let you pass. He said, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Sin has occurred and it's over. And what we like to do is we like to look at the world around us and say, man, I, I, I mean, I know I've got some issues, but I am not like those people. I was reading a book this week about um, that was talking about the parable that Jesus tells uh, in the temple when he's in the temple and he sees a tax collector and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee says, God, thank you that I'm not like him. God, thank you that I'm better than him. And the tax collector just says, Lord, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And God says, one went away justified and the other didn't. And he said, anytime we begin to say, thank God I'm not like them, we become exactly who the Pharisee was in that story. And the truth is, there is no level of sin because the severity of your sin is always based upon who you sin against. Think about it this way. If you get mad at your house this afternoon and you kick the wall, is that bad? Well, it depends. You know, I mean, how hard did you kick it? Did you put a hole in it? If you just kick the door frame and nothing happened, I mean, it's bad. You probably hurt yourself a little bit, but you're not going to get in trouble, right? Like, legally, nobody's coming after you for kicking your own house. Now, if you go home this afternoon and you get mad and you kick your dog, is that better or worse than the, than the wall? It's worse, right? And people may come after you and prosecute you. Some of you can't even imagine that. That's like terrible. Now, if you go home this afternoon and get mad and you kick your neighbor, is that better or worse? According to the law, is that better or worse? Like assault is worse, right? Let's imagine that somehow you make it into the Oval Office and you roundhouse the president in the face. According to the law, is that better or worse? I'm not asking personal feelings. I'm asking according to the law. Y'all don't want me to go Romans 12 on authority figures, all right? According to the law, is, are you going to have problems if you kick the president in the face? Yes. Why? Because he's the president. The problem with our sin is that it's not against other people. The problem with our sin is that it's against the holy, perfect God. Even in our best actions, even at our best, our motives are infiltrated with sin. I mean, even when I'm preaching to you right now, man, I'm preaching. This seems like a good thing. This is like what you, you know, man, this is what I ought to be doing. I feel called to this. But even in the midst of this, there are moments when I'm looking out here and I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what they're thinking about this right now. I wonder if they like it. Oh, they didn't like that point. That wasn't good. Boy, they look dead today. That must be something I'm doing. Or I look out there and I'm like, man, they love that. I'm good. I'm good. Like, it's just, you can't help it. It's part of our sinful nature is inside of us. I read a quote this week from a bunch of people that lived two or three hundred years ago, the Puritans, like when they founded the country. And it says this, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. James 4.17 tells us that to know to do good and not to do it is to sin. And how many times in your lives you thought, ah, I'll get that later, or I'm, not, I'm too tired, or not today. 
Leviticus shows us that our sin is much worse and more pervasive than we ever imagined. Romans 3.23, you know this verse if you've been around church. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word in the original language means that every day, continually, every moment of every day, our lives fall short of the glory of God. Our sin is worse than we ever imagined. Leviticus spells that out. Here's the second thing. But God's grace is greater than our sin. I mean, I know I got one from Bob, but if you're ever going to amen in a church, to realize that God's grace is greater than our sin is unbelievable. Listen, there are two goats. You know why there are two goats? It shows two parts of our forgiveness from God. First of all, the justification. He takes the goat in. He kills the goat. He sacrifices the goat. And that means that we have been set right with God. God has paid the penalty. The goat has taken our place or the people of Israel's place. It has placed himself in that place and taken the punishment for their sins. But then there's the goat that they send out. And the thing that God wanted to show us with that is that not only are we justified, not only are we made where God has paid the penalty, but the other goat shows that God not only pays from our sins, he removes it completely from us. The first goat shows that we are forgiven on the basis of a substitute. The second, that our sins are forgotten and removed from us. As Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, those two never meet. God removes our sin. The prophet Micah said that God has placed our sins at the bottom of the deepest ocean. And writer Corey Ten Boom said that God then puts a sign right next to that that says, no fishing allowed. Like it's gone. And listen, it's bad stuff. Anybody remember the name Sam Houston, right? Sam Houston, first governor of Texas, I think. Tennessee boy went down there to help him out. Alamo, all that kind of stuff. Sam Houston was saved later in life. And when he was saved... He got baptized by the pastor. The pastor who baptized him said, Sam, your sins are washed away and now in the deepest ocean. And Houston's only reply was, God help those fish. Like the point is, our sins are horrible and they're gone. Some people say, but you don't know what I've done. There's no way God's grace can be greater than my sin. What I love in chapter 16, verse 16, he says, whatever their sins may have been, whatever it is, they're gone. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, no matter what mistakes you have made, no matter what sins you have committed, you are not beyond the reach of the grace of God. When you say I can't be forgiven, what you're saying is not that your sin is too big. You're saying that our God is too small. And his grace is not enough. The truth is that God's grace is greater than our sin. Chapter 16 tells us the third thing. That Jesus is the only way to God. Wait a minute. There's no Jesus in Leviticus 16. Well, you have to be um, somebody that just doesn't want to see it to see the parallels between what happens on the Day of Atonement and what happens with Jesus. Just like the high priest, he began to prepare a week before the sacrifice. In fact, the week before, the book of John, is half of it is focused on the last week of Christ's life, the Passion Week. The night before he was sacrificed, he stayed up all night. He wasn't clothed in rich garments like the Jewish high priest. He was stripped of the only garment he ever had. And instead of being cheered on by the people around, he was mocked and jeered and that you'll crucify him around. He wasn't bathed in a purifying pool. He was bathed in the spit of his captives. 
When he came before God, he didn't receive words of encouragement, but God turned his face away, silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to my father's will, he took the crown of thorns. He was struck dead, and even though he had no defilement in him, but he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. On the cross when he died, he said, it is finished. To tell us, die, it is paid. It is over. I have paid the price for your sin. The curtain that separated us from God was a symbol of the perfect flesh torn so that we could enter the presence of God. And when he died on that day, that curtain itself, that curtain that we talked about, was ripped in two to show access to the Holy of Holies because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus' body was the mercy seat where his blood was sprinkled on so that we could find forgiveness of sins. Jesus was our scapegoat who took away our sins forever to the grave. And he was in a borrowed grave for three days. As far as the east is from the west, hidden in the depths of the sea, in the depths of the earth, they are not merely covered over, they are gone forever. There's a story in the Old Testament that the prophet Zechariah saw of a high priest named Joshua that goes to offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And as he's going to offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, he notices, the prophet does, he sees this Joshua getting ready to give it. And instead of that clean white linen, he is covered in human excrement. And the prophet Zechariah is like, no, 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 that can't happen. He can't go in there. And then he hears... The Lord say to Joshua, the high priest, take off those filthy clothes. I have taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. I will send my servant and I'll remove the sin of this land in one single day. God had given Zechariah a vision of how we all, even at the most religious among us, look as we approach God. And a promise to remove that defilement forever in a single day. Now here's the cool thing about that story. If you take the name Joshua from Hebrew and turn it into Greek, it becomes Jesus. Jesus was the new Joshua, perfect, clothed in our filth, suffered its consequences, put on the garments of righteousness. And because of that, Jesus, who deserved commendation, got condemnation. And we who deserve condemnation got commendation. He took our sin. He bore our shame. People misread Leviticus because they read Leviticus and they're like, man, look at all this stuff I've got to do. But that's not the point of Leviticus. The point of Leviticus is to show us the steps to which God would take to come to us and to save us from our sins. And what's absolutely clear when you read this story and you read the book of Leviticus, there is only one way to come to the Father. There has always only been one way to come to the Father. And in the Old Testament, it was through Day of Atonement ritual. And in our day on this side of the cross, it is through Jesus Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved except through the name of Jesus. I saw this week a a story. It was on the Internet, so you know it's 100% true, right? Uh, and it was a study asking people's religious beliefs in America. And the most popular religious belief in America today now seems to be that there are multiple ways to find your way to God. Which sounds loving and caring. It's just not true. Nadab and Abihu were sincere. And yet they suffered the consequence. The whole chapter declares that the only way to God is through Christ. Here's the last thing we see in this passage and then we're done. You have to accept the atonement for yourself. This is at the end of the chapter. And like I said, we're not reading the whole thing. But you get to the end of the chapter. And in chapter 16, verse 29, 
God says, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. He tells them, this is how you're going to receive forgiveness, all right? You're the people. You're the, the high priest, the one guy in the whole land is going to do this. Here's how you're going to receive forgiveness. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves. There is fasting involved. And not do any work. Whether native-born or a foreigner resigned among you, because of the Day of Atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. He's saying, listen, you're not going to do anything. You're going to sit. He's going to do it. You're going to be made clean. you got nothing to do with it. And in case they miss that, he tells them, then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It's a day of Sabbath rest. You're to deny yourself. It's a lasting ordinance. Don't do anything. The picture here is to reap the benefits of the Day of Atonement, you had to do something. It wasn't praying. It wasn't paying a lot of money. It wasn't going anywhere specific. It was observing a Sabbath. And the Sabbath meant doing nothing. But you had to receive it. I read this week about uh, one of the most bizarre Supreme Court cases in history. It's called United States versus Wilson. It was 1833. The defendant was a guy named George Wilson who had pleaded guilty to several crimes of robbery and endangering the life of a mail driver, like M-A-I-L, all right? It was apparently a serious enough crime at that time in his area to be sentenced to death. Well, Andrew Jackson was the president. Andrew Jackson was known kind of renegade, Tennessean, right? He gave the guy a full pardon. He said, he didn't be put to death for that. He Robbed a few things. He didn't be put to death. Gave him a full pardon. George Wilson refused it. Andrew Jackson said, you're completely forgiven. He says, I don't want to be forgiven. You don't have to pay any price. I don't want to do that. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, Andrew Jackson and the United States government claiming that a pardon was given, a pardon had to be received, and George Wilson saying, I don't want it. And this is what the court said. A pardon is an act of grace, a contract, And a contract is not complete unless both sides ratify it. If it is rejected, we have no power in the court to force it on him. I don't know where they got that argument, but that's what the Bible essentially says about forgiveness. And there will be people, maybe some of you in this room, who will go to hell with your sins paid for, and you refused to receive it. Yom Kippur was a day when he says, this is how you get forgiveness for your sins. Jesus died on the cross so that you might receive a pardon. But the question is, have you received it? Let's pray together.